So, just like Trace said, uh, last week we left off with the five Great Commission passages, and we took a look at each one of those passages and a number of distinctive features that are associated with those particular texts. And so, just in review, very, very quickly, I want to point out to you some of the headlines that we took from each one of those passages. So, if you remember from Matthew 28... 18 through 20, um, Jesus tells the disciples, right, that they're to go and they're to make disciples of all nations, and then he tells them in Matthew 28 how they are to do that. Uh, Does anybody remember what the method was for how they were to make disciples? And by week three, you should figure out by now that I love your participation. So how did Jesus tell these guys that they were to go about making disciples? They were to teach, and what was the other thing they were to do? baptize. They were to teach, they were to baptize. They were to teach, they were to baptize. And where we see God's word taught, right, and the ordinances properly administered, there we find a church. Because those things, right, those things, the teaching of God's word and the administration of the ordinances, that authority is given to the local church based upon what we learned from Matthew 16 and Matthew 18. And so from Matthew 28, we can gather that Jesus told these guys that they were to teach and baptize, teach and baptize. And then in Mark 16, we unpacked the fact that he told these guys to proclaim, right, or to preach the gospel in the whole world. And because that particular commissioning text focused on this idea of proclaiming and teaching, that there was this important characteristic of linguistics, right? Part of our commissioned work is linguistic in nature. That's absolutely critical for us to understand if we intend, right, as a church to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, that there's going to be language work involved. Beyond that, we also learned in Luke 24, 47, that Jesus told these guys what the content of the message was that they were going to preach, And what did the content of the gospel message include? Thus it was written in the Old Testament, so the Christ was both prophesied and promised. And what was promised and prophesied about the Christ? That he would suffer, die, and resurrect. And then based upon that historical fact and truth, there was a response to which humanity was to give in light of those facts. And what was the response? To repent and believe And then four, there was the promise of forgiveness for those who turned from their sins and trusted in Christ. So those four things, the promised Messiah in the Old Testament, he would come, live, die, resurrect. There was a response on our behalf and the promise on God's side that he would forgive those who responded in that way. And so that in that particular passage, we get the content of the gospel. And then in John 20, 21, if you guys remember, as the Father sent me, so I send you. Forty times Jesus is referred to as the sent one, and then the tables turn, and it goes from Jesus being the sent one to the disciples and the church being those who are sent. Jesus does not bother to tell them where they're going, how long they're going to stay, what they're supposed to say. None of that stuff is involved, and so very much John 20, 21 is like Genesis 12, 1 through 3. God doesn't tell Abraham where he's going, how long he's staying, but what we did gather was that part of being sent, like Christ was sent, was that it would include two things. It may include many more things, but what were the two things that we highlighted from John 20, 21? Do you guys remember? That as we are sent, we could expect two things to happen. That's exactly right. Well done. Okay, that we would serve 
and that we would suffer. And we gather that from the context of the Gospel of John itself. In John chapter 13, when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, he tells those guys, you're going to basically be doing the same thing. And then over in John 15, he says, a servant is not above his master, right? And if I'm going to suffer, you can expect to suffer too. And then in Acts 1.8, we talked about the means by which they were going to fulfill this mission. It wasn't going to be on their own strength. It wasn't going to be by their own power, their own wit, their own wisdom. They were going to be promised to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out this work. And it was going to happen in a specific geographical pattern. They were going to start in Jerusalem. They would move to Judea, Samaria, and eventually to the ends of the earth. And that would have come as no surprise to them Because what had Jesus done in John chapter 3 and 4? He'd already modeled to them what it would look like and where they were going to go, right? They had a picture of here's what's going to happen. Now, here's the reason why I wanted us to go over those five texts and to highlight those specific things. Because as we walk essentially through the book of Acts, you're going to see Luke gather up all of these commissioning passages. And as he narrates the history of the church you're going to pick up on all of these different elements from each one of these particular commissioning statements. And we're going to highlight those as we walk through the book of Acts. Now, what's incredible is this week, we actually start off where we left off last week, literally. And what do I mean whenever I say we're going to start this week where we left off from last week? Well, in Luke 24, 47, Jesus not only is going to give them the content of the gospel, which includes those four things that I just talked about, but he's also going to tell them where they're going to start. So this is what it says. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day he should rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, and then Jesus tells them where they're supposed to start from. Beginning where? Jerusalem. Okay? Don't just start anywhere. Fellas, you don't get to pick and decide how this thing's going to go down. All authority on heaven and earth belongs to me, right? So you follow my marching orders, and my marching orders are for you to start in Jerusalem. Now, if you're a disciple, the last place that you want to be after Jesus ascends is where? Jerusalem. Okay, you do not want to be in Jerusalem. Where would you prefer to be? In your home, well, probably in your hometown, or maybe the ends of the earth, farthest from there that you can possibly imagine. Why would you not want to start in Jerusalem if you're one of the disciples? Because the Romans are still breathing down your neck, right? And the Jewish religious leaders are going to be breathing down your neck. These guys are Galileans. Preference for them would be to leave Jerusalem and march north and go back home. But Jesus puts them right in the center of the hornet's nest. This is where I want you to start from, and there are a number of reasons why. Why does he want them to start in Jerusalem? It's strategic. It's intentional, right? It's providential. God is sovereignly and wisely directing the fulfillment of his purpose through his promise. And so why is he going to tell these guys to start in Jerusalem? Well, because in 10 days... What's going to happen? We're at the end, right? Remember last week we talked about this 40-day period where he gives these commissioning statements. Well, when he ascends 10 days later, there's going to be the celebration of the Feast of Booth at Pentecost. Penta means 50, right? So 
40 plus 10 days later gets us to the 50-day mark. And when Passover, right, or excuse me, when the Feast of Booth is celebrated at Pentecost, what's going to happen? There's going to be all of these Jews who show up from all over the world. Now, why are they all over the world? Because they've been scattered there because of the exile. So for those who have not returned, they're still living in foreign lands. And they're going to show back up, and they're going to be speaking all of these different languages. This is why they're going to speak in tongues in Acts chapter 2, which I'm going to get to in just a second. And so they're going to show back up, and when they get done at Pentecost... For those who hear the gospel, repent, and believe, they're going to turn around and go back home where they left. And what are they going to take with them? The gospel. They're going to take the gospel with them. Now, if you're the disciples, you're saying, we want out of town. And Jesus says, no, stay in town. I actually want you to stay here because this is where it's going to start from. There's an intentional reason. So he tells them in Luke 24, 47, not only the content of the message, but where they're going to start. And not only does he tell them where they're going to start, but then in Acts 1.8, he tells them what they're going to do. So here's where you're going to start from. Here's what you're going to do. And what are they going to do? Well, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses. What are they going to do? They're going to bear witness. Now, what does a witness do, generally speaking? They testify. What do they testify to? Not whatever they want, not what do they feel like saying, right? Not what's popular, not what's unpopular. They testify to the facts, to the truth. Specifically, they're going to give testimony. Anybody who's a witness is going to give testimony to what they've saw, to what they've heard, possibly what they've touched, maybe even what they've tasted or what they've smelt. So in Mark chapter 3, verse 14, when Jesus appoints the disciples, he appoints them for two reasons, to be with him, Mark tells us, and to preach. Why is it important that they're with him for three years? Not just once a week, not once a month, not once every six months. It's critical that they are with him so that they can see him calm the storm, so that they can hear him say to Lazarus, come out. Right, So that they can touch the wounds in his hands and in his side. So it's important that they're with him so that their testimony is actually credible. And they're not only going to testify to those things, but specifically they're going to testify to his life, which I just mentioned. But then in addition to that, his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And so what are they going to do? They're going to be witnesses. Where are they going to start from? Jerusalem. So this literally, you end with the Great Commission text, and they walk you straight into the book of Acts. So you've got an idea of where they're going from and exactly what we should expect to see over the next 28 chapters. Now, here's the really beautiful and helpful thing about Acts 1.8. Okay, Acts 1.8 actually operates like a table of contents. I don't know if you know this. Some of you may have been aware of this. This may not be new news to you. But what's really nice about Acts 1-8 is that it serves as this really helpful table of contents in the sense that in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts, the gospel is going to be spreading through Jerusalem. And then, what's the next location that we're told in Acts 1-8? Where's the gospel going to move next? Judea and some area. 
Is that good or what? <laughs> Michael gave me a thumbs up. <laughs> the rest of you are still warming up. Um, <laughs> that's a good Bible dad joke, isn't it? Okay. Thank you, Jill. And then eventually, where's the gospel going to head in 10 through 28? To the ends of the earth. So why am I giving you this? Because this actually serves as a really great 30,000-foot guide. Luke, because he's a physician and because he's detailed, both in his accounts in Luke and in the book of Acts, man, he loads up his narratives with detailed information. So if you're down on the ground reading one of his narratives, you can be lost in all the details and forget that from 30,000 foot, here's where we're headed. So if I said to you guys, hey, we're in chapter 5, where's the gospel? You say what? Jerusalem. If I say, where's the gospel in chapter 17? You say? Ends of the earth, right? If I say, where's it at in chapter 2? Jerusalem. Where's it at in chapter 8? Judea and Samaria. Where's it at in chapter 21? Ends of the earth. So this, again, just gives us some rails to run on. Because as I walk us through the book of Acts this evening, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be touching down on some of these different narratives, and we're going to be pulling out some very helpful things from these stories. But as we're doing that, I want us to keep in mind where we're at at the 30,000-foot level. Does that make sense? Okay, so as we roll into the book of Acts, here's how it goes down. Basically, the first seven chapters go like this, and I'm going to make you a very quick summary of them. In chapter 1, Jesus tells them, right, to stay in Jerusalem. Here's why. The Holy Spirit is going to fall, and you're going to know when the Holy Spirit falls. Do they know when it happens? You bet they do. There's zero confusion, okay? And then in chapter 2, in fact, just like Jesus promised, and just like he not only said the Holy Spirit's going to come in Acts, he's also promised this in the Gospels. I'm leaving, and it's actually better that way. And they're thinking, wow, Jesus, what could be better than having you at our side, right? Not with us, but where? In us. You can't get any closer than that. And so he's told these guys already, I'm leaving, and I'm promising to send the Spirit. Again, remembering from last week, that's a major theme in John's gospel, sent, It's not just Jesus that's sent, right? The Father sends the Son, and then the Father and the Son send the Spirit, and then the Spirit comes in and dwells us. And so, chapter 2, the Spirit falls, just like Jesus had promised. And when the Holy Spirit falls, there are a number of things that transpire. Peter stands up, and he preaches, right? We're told that there is speaking in tongues. In addition to that, there is a response to Peter's message, A number of people repent and believe, and literally in one sermon, Peter has a megachurch on his hands, okay? Like that. I don't know if you've ever thought about that before, but that is a lot to deal with in one fail swoop. He's got 3,000 believers on their hands. Now, where are most of these believers from? I've already told you. Where are they from? They're from Jerusalem. Ethnically, most of those people are Jewish Okay, and so he preaches, and after he preaches, and people repent and believe in Christ, what do they do next with these believers? He tells them, repent and be baptized. So when we think about our commissioning text that we talked about last week, which particular commissioning text is taking place in real time? Matthew 28, because what's he told these guys? You're going to teach and do what? 
baptize. And that's exactly what Peter's done, is he he stands up, he preaches, he teaches, they respond in faith and repentance, and then they baptize them. Now, I'm going to further point out to you what they do with them afterwards as we work our way into the book of Acts. So hang with me. It's not like they just have all these random believers and random disciples. They're eventually going to gather them into a church, and there'll be leadership that's established. But then we roll over to Acts chapter 3, and what do we find that's going on in Acts chapter 3? Same exact thing. So by the way, if you're in your Bible in Acts, you're going to be turning pages, okay? So we're going to be rolling through Acts chapter 3. Look at verse 18. Some of you probably have a heading uh, over verse 11 that says, Peter speaks in Solomon's portico. And so Peter's going to stand up, and he's going to preach, and look at what he preaches in verse 18. It says this, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Which commissioning passage is Peter leveraging in verse 18? This is why we reviewed them. In Acts 2, we've got teaching and baptizing. What material is Peter preaching? Luke. Luke 24, 46 through 47. How do we know? Look at verse 18. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets. So what does Luke 24, 47 say? Thus it was written. And what was written? Keep reading in verse 18. That his Christ would suffer. Okay, so sometimes when the the disciples or the apostles say suffering, that also includes his suffering and resurrection. It's a shorthand sometimes. And so it's written And what was written? That the Christ would suffer. And then what's the next thing in the message of the gospel? What's the material of the gospel? What's the next thing? That those who hear the message would respond. And what's the response? Repent and believe. Okay, repent and believe. And then look at the end of verse 19. That your sins may be blotted out. Right? So what's the promise? If you repent and believe, that your sins will be forgiven. So right away in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, Peter is already leveraging what Jesus has told them in Luke 24. Roll over to chapter 4, okay? Should we be surprised at what we see happening in Acts chapter 4? What are the apostles going to be doing? Preaching, teaching, speaking. Look what's going on in verse 2. Greatly annoyed... Who's greatly annoyed? Okay, the Sadducees. And what are they annoyed about? It's not because they're passing out bottles of water with John 3.16 on the side of them. They're not annoyed because they're being nice guys. They're not annoyed because they're doing good deeds. They're specifically annoyed about something particular. And what is it? That they were teaching the people, and proclaiming. So what's the fuss about? Words. The fuss begins when the gospel gets preached, right? And we can do all these great nice things as we engage the community and as we engage the world around us, but the rubber meets the road when we open our mouth and we call people to repentance and forgiveness because we are children of wrath. 
We're sinful. We're separated from God. We're his enemies, right? And they're teaching, specifically in this context, about Jesus' resurrection from the dead, okay? Look over at verse 18 of chapter 4. So they called them and they charged them not to do something specifically. What's the charge? Do not teach it all in the name of Jesus. The charge has to do with their words. So what's happening in Acts 4? If we look at our commissioning text and we say, okay, man, which commissioning text applies to this particular instance? Which one might you pull from? Which one? You could pull from Mark. You could pull from what? What are you supposed to do? Teach and baptize. Teach and baptize. What are these guys being called to account for? Teaching, speaking, okay? And what about the content of the gospel, which included Christ's resurrection? He really rose from the dead. What do we see in Acts chapter 5? Same story. Acts chapter 5, verse 20. Take a look at verse 20 and verse 21. Here's what Luke tells us. The apostles, the heading over verse 17 says, the apostles are arrested, okay? And in verse 20, we are told that they are to go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and they began to do what? Teach. Which commissioning passage? Matthew 28. Teach. Baptize, teach, baptize. They're proclaiming words. They're speaking words. You guys remember from last week, one of the things that I pointed out from Mark 16, 15 is that as Christians, right, our battle is a war of words. It's a war of words. The sword that we are wielding is not the sword that Peter pulls out in the garden, cutting off ears. That's not how the kingdom advances. We fight a different battle by wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And so here we find these guys in Acts chapter 5. Same thing. They're imprisoned. Okay? They're suffering. Which commissioning text applies? John 20, 21. You will suffer and you will serve. And so we find right away that they are suffering. You get to Acts chapter 6. What's going on in Acts chapter 6? Well, there's an issue that arises within the church of Jerusalem. We've got some widows that need taken care of. The office of deacon is established, and the reason, look at chapter 6, verse 4. It was so that the apostles, but we, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Right? So this whole office of deacon is established so that the apostles might continue the work of teaching, preaching, proclaiming, explaining, expounding, And what are they going to talk about? All the things that we've talked about from Luke 24, 47. Here's how Christ was prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. Here's what's going to go down. We're going to teach you what that means, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then you find yourself at Acts chapter 7. And what's going on in Acts chapter 7? Nothing new under the sun. This is amazing to me, by the way. For some of you guys, you might be thinking, yeah, this is pretty obvious. What's the big deal? There's massive implications for this when it comes to our missiological practices. There's massive implications for this when it comes time for us to get ready to send workers from UBC ourselves. And so theologically, there's underpinnings to all of what I'm trying to point out to us. Acts chapter 7, what Stephen get himself in trouble for? Actually, roll back up to chapter 6, verse 13. 
And what are we told in Acts 6.13? They set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak, okay? Speak words, words against this holy place and the law. And so Stephen is doing the same thing that who else has been doing? Peter's been doing, John has been doing. What does it get Stephen? Gets him a front row seat to comfort, safety, and luxury. No. The same issue. He's not stoned for being a nice guy. He loses his life for opening his mouth. In fact, if you read through the the book of Acts, that's a repeated phrase that Luke is going to use. So Peter opened his mouth, right? So Philip opened his mouth. He gets killed for opening up his mouth. And so what do we see transpiring right there in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts? Fulfillment of all of the different commissioning texts that we talked about last week. They are doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They're not making it up, right? There's no fancy gimmicks. They're doing exactly what Jesus said. Teach, preach, proclaim, baptize, and gather those baptized believers into a church And in the process of being sent, you can expect to be serving one another, and you can expect to suffer. And what happens? They're imprisoned, right? They're brought before councils. Stephen is stoned, and it costs him his life. And so as you come to the end of Acts chapter 7, where are we going to find ourselves in chapter 8? No surprise. What's the table of contents tell us? Where are we moving to geographically? Judea and Samaria. And how do we know that we're moving in Acts chapter 8 from Judea to Samaria? Well, Luke's going to tell us in Acts 8, 1. And Saul, okay, who had been ravaging the church in the previous chapters, approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution. Which great commissioning text applies? John 20. What's happening? They're suffering. There arose on that day a great persecution against the church. So all of these disciples that come to faith in Acts chapter 2, all these believers, they're not random believers that are left out there on their own. They're gathered into a local assembly. And so in this particular passage, Luke is talking about which church, the church where? In Jerusalem. Okay, So where the gospel is preached the church comes and follows along, right? There's a church that follows where the gospel's preached in the book of Acts. And so there's this great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of where? Luke tells us, Judea and Samaria. Now, how many of you guys were able to, and by the way, don't feel bad if you don't raise your hand. How many of you guys were able to make it to church Sunday night and listen to Terry do the devotional? Okay, a number of us. Zechariah 13.7, one of the things that Terry unpacked for us was that it was prophesied that the sheep would do what? Scatter. Where is it happening? Right here. And what did Terry say? Right, that that scattering, right, that the shepherd would strike the sheep, that striking would include believers' suffering. Right? This is what he pointed out Sunday night, and it ties directly in to what's happening in Acts 1.8. They have been scattered. It's been brought about at the cost of Stephen's life. 
the church is what's been struck. The believers have been scattered. And so here's what happens. We take a little geography lesson. If you remember, where's Jesus telling them to start? Down here at the bottom in Jerusalem. Where do we know that the gospel is going to head geographically after it leaves Jerusalem? Judea and Samaria. That's exactly where it's going. And so Acts 1.8 becomes Acts 8.1. You guys are like, oh, that's neat. <laughs> okay, Acts 1.8 becomes Acts 8.1. And then three verses later, here's what Luke tells us in Acts 8.4-5. through 5. Now those who were scattered went about doing a specific task. They're not drilling wells. Okay? Some of you guys are like, is that a bad thing? No, not necessarily. They're doing something very specific. The work of the church, the mission of the church, involves the fulfilling of the five commissioning texts, and we've already went over what that includes. They're preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and when he goes down to Samaria, what's he do? He proclaims to them the Christ. And so now we have moved geographically away from Jerusalem, and now the gospel is spreading into Judea and Samaria. So we're dealing with a new area, and we're dealing with a new people, but it's the exact same method. Once again, there's no gimmicks, right? There's no rapid multiplication, there's no new, man, how do we get some creative, cool strategy put together, right? There's no skipping steps in the process. Here's what you're to do. You're to preach, you're to teach, you're to baptize. When people repent and turn to, their, and turn to Christ in faith, you're to gather those disciples into a local church. Now, you're going to see as you move forward in the book of Acts that elders are eventually going to be established in order to lead those body, that body of believers, and what's one of the main qualifications of an elder? That they're able to do what? Teach. Okay? That's no surprise, and it's no accident. And then by the time you get to the end of Acts chapter 9, this is what we're told. So the church, which church are we talking about now? Not the church in Jerusalem. The church where? In Judea and Samaria. Where the gospel goes, the church what? The church follows. Where we see the gospel preached and spread, churches are established. There's now been a church established in Jerusalem. We get to the end of Acts chapter 9, <clears throat> and there's a church established among the Judeans and the Samarians, right, throughout Gal Judea, excuse me, and Galilee and Samaria, and they had peace, and they were being built up. Now, between, between Acts 1, 8 where the gospel begins to spread into Judea and Samaria, and Acts 9.31, so those are the two chapters that are going to cover this particular geographical area, between Acts 8.1 and Acts 9.31, what major event transpires between the beginning and the end of 8.1 and 9.31? Arguably the most important event in Christendom, second to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Paul's conversion. Okay. Paul is converted, and this is what Luke tells us in 9.15. But the Lord said to him, who's him? Ananias. Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name for the Gentiles 
and for kings and for the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And when it says that Paul's going to carry his name, he's not actually like carrying, right, an office block that sits on Paul's desk that says Paul. What does it mean whenever it says that he's going to carry Christ's name? What's he going to do? He's going to bear a cross and he's going to preach, right? He's going to speak. And if you look at Paul's particular, this particular commissioning text about Paul here, what else is he going to do? He's going to suffer. Which commissioning passage applies to what's happening with Paul in 915? John 20, 21, you will suffer and you will serve. Jesus promises him that. Now, what other particular commissioning passage is happening in Acts 9.15? Not only is Paul going to suffer, but Ananias is told to do what? Go. Just like Matthew what? 28. Go. Now, some scholars will come along and tell you that that an appropriate translation of Matthew 28... is, right, as you're going. Raise your hand if you've, you have any idea what I'm talking about, okay? You've probably heard something along the lines of, yeah, 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 the, a better translation would be something along the lines of, as you're going, make disciples, okay? <clears throat> there are numerous, right, there are numerous articles that have been put out. I can put you, that, the book that we gave away last week, right, the 40 questions about the Great Commission, there is a fantastic article in there that Ryan pointed me to that does some pretty disastrous handiwork, okay, to that translation. Further, put yourself in Ananias' shoes. Ananias is not, right, it's not as he's going that he hopefully will stumble into Paul. He doesn't want to be near Paul. He would prefer to be as far away from Paul as possible because of Paul's reputation. So it's not like as he's going, he maybe stumbles into Paul and you know, gets to make him into a disciple, he's told to specifically do what? Go to him. Go to that place. Which means you're going to have to leave where you're at to go to this guy. And going to this guy presents the possibility of risk, the cost of your life. Who knows what may happen? Because Paul's not trustworthy and Ananias isn't sure that right he can trust Paul and be in his presence. And so I just want to point out to us sometimes that we We say things like, well, as we're going, right? Hopefully, like, as we're going, we'll make disciples of all the nations. But Ananias is not going to stumble into Paul as he's going. (laughs) He needs to be specifically told, go to this guy. So, why else is it important that Paul gets converted in Acts 9? Because he's going to be this instrument to take the gospel to a new group of what? People, the Gentiles. And so as you come to the end of Acts 9, there's this progression. We've moved out of Jerusalem, church has been established, gospel's been preached, right? People have turned from their sins, put their faith and trust in Christ. You move to Judea and Samaria. What are these guys doing? They're preaching the gospel. In fact, I didn't point this out in the PowerPoint, but if you look in Acts chapter 8, when Philip preaches to the Ethiopian eunuch, after he explains Isaiah to him, what's he do with the guy? baptizes him. Matthew 28 is being applied in Acts 8 as well. Now all of that brings us to Acts chapter 10 through Acts chapter 11. 
And I just personally refer to Acts 10 and 11 um, as the breakthrough because something very significant is going to happen in Acts chapter 10. Luke is going to start off the narrative with the story of this guy named Cornelius. Now, the narrative story of Cornelius is the longest story in the book of Acts. Luke carves out 66 verses to tell us about Cornelius' conversion. Compared to 31 verses to explain to us Paul's conversion and 13 verses to tell us went, went, <clears throat> excuse me, what went down at Pentecost. What's Luke trying to tip us off to with 66 verses to explain to us this story about Cornelius? That it's very, very significant. And we're now moving away from a region, and we're moving away from a people. First seven chapters, Jerusalem, Jews. Next two chapters, Judea and Samaria. And now we're moving away from that location. We're in Acts chapter 10. So where are we at if we look at our 30,000-foot table of contents? Ends of the earth. Okay, We are moving in Acts chapter 10 to the ends of the earth. A lot of commentators will argue that the gospel does not begin to move to the ends of the earth until Acts chapter 13. Um, I'm more convinced that it actually starts in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius' conversion, and then the gospel is eventually going to move to Antioch, which, I point, which I'll point out in just a second. So if you haven't already turned there, flip over to Acts chapter 10, because there are a few things that I want to highlight and point out to you from the narrative of Cornelius. I've already mentioned that there's a geographical movement away from Judea and Samaria, and I've also already pointed out that there's a people movement. What do I mean whenever I say people movement? Well, we move from Jew, right, Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria. Samaritans were often described as half-Jews, right, or half-breeds, and so sometimes that was used as a derogatory term, but we move from Jew to half Jew, and then in Acts chapter 10, look at verse 2. Luke describes Cornelius as a devout man who feared God. So we're now moving not only away geographically, but we're moving away to a new type of person. Whenever I, what do I say when I say new type of person? Jew, half Jew, and now we've got this new term, God-fearer. So Cornelius knows a thing or two about the God of Israel. Now, this is not the first time that we have encountered a centurion. It's also not the first time that Peter has encountered a centurion. Can anybody remember from last week in the Gospels where Peter first encounters a centurion? What's that? Okay, Luke 10, that would be Luke's account, good. And then Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. Right, where Jesus goes and does ministry with a Roman centurion whose servant needs healed. Peter is present to hear and witness the entire account. The Roman centurion in Matthew 8 says, Hey, listen, I don't need you to show up. Just speak the word because I actually understand how authority works. When I say go, my servants do what I say. And so here we find ourselves at Acts chapter 10, and Peter's going to have another encounter with the centurion. And you would suspect... Because Peter's already had a run at this in Matthew 8, that he's going to get it. No fussing, no arguing. 
Wheeler, by the way, preached an incredible sermon on this if you want to go listen to it online. And he pointed out that these two guys have two different visions. How does Peter respond to his vision? Peter, here's what I want you to do. What's he say? No, Lord. Cornelius gets a vision. How's Cornelius respond? Yes. (laughs) Oh, Peter. Right? I can't wait. I'm serious. I cannot wait to talk to him. I can't wait. It's going to be incredible. Now, if you read through the entire narrative account, 12 times Luke uses the word sent. Which commissioning passage is Luke tapping into? John what? 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And so 12 times Luke is going to point out this word sent. Eventually we know that Peter arrives on the scene. And in verse 34, look what Luke tells us. So Peter opened his mouth. Right There's that phrase that I told you that Luke uses repeatedly. So Peter opens his mouth. And he says, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. And then if you come down to verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. And to him, here we go again, all the prophets bear witness to everyone who believes in his name, they receive forgiveness of sins right through him. So when Peter stands up and he preaches to Cornelius and his family, what material is he using? The material from Luke 24. The prophets bear witness that Christ was prophesied and promised. What would happen? That he would be crucified. Whoever believes in him repents. There's a response. And then what's the promise? The forgiveness of what? Sins. So once again, Peter's tapping the material from Luke 24, 45 through 47 as he preaches. And then in verses 44 through 48, there are a series of events that happen. As Peter is preaching, verse 44, we're told that the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word of God. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then he asked him to remain for some days. What are the things that are happening in these verses? The word's been preached. The spirit falls. They're speaking in tongues. People believe. And there's baptisms. Where have we seen this exact same thing before? Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. Acts chapter 10 is often referred to as the Pentecost to the Gentile world. Luke's borrowing the exact same language. And once again, if we reference our commissioning texts from last week, which ones are taking place in this particular narrative account? Well, Peter has stood up and done what? Preached. Cornelius, right, and his family, they have heard the word of God proclaimed. They have repented and they have turned from their sins. And what does Peter do in response? Teach and baptize. So once again, we see Matthew 28 unfolding. Now, was Cornelius a believer 
prior to Peter showing up. Some people will argue that because he's called a God-fearer, that he believes in a monotheistic God, is that sufficient enough for him to be saved? No. Because when Peter goes back to Jerusalem in Acts 11, chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, he's going to recount to the church in Jerusalem what transpired and went down at Cornelius' house. And look at what he says in verse 14. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. So prior to Peter's arrival, Cornelius is not saved. How does he get saved? When Peter shows up and speaks. That's how it happens. He's not converted prior to that. He is after Peter comes and preaches, and the Holy Spirit opens up Cornelius' eyes and his family household's eyes. And so... Progressively, where are we at now? We're still at the ends of the earth. We've moved away from Jerusalem. We've moved away from Judea and Samaria. So we're moving away from a geographic location and we're moving away from a type of people. We're going from Jew to half Jew to now. The gospel's moving to God fearers in this particular instance. Now, after Acts chapter 11, verse 18, when Peter has gone back to Jerusalem and he has recounted what happened at Cornelius' house, We pick up in verse 19 with some very unique wording. Look at what Luke says in verse 19 of Acts chapter 11. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So look up here. The same language that Peter uses in Acts 11.19 is almost the exact same language that he has already used in Acts 8.1. This is what he said in Acts 8.1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So what's Luke doing here as he unrolls the narrative historical account? Well, it's, it's almost like a scene jump in a movie. Okay, so think of like Lord of the Rings. So you're watching the movie Lord of the Rings, and you're watching this entire scene transpire um, with Gandalf. And it goes on for four or five, six minutes or whatever, and then there's a scene cut, and now we're over here to Frodo for a few minutes, and you're watching that scene, and then what does the director do? He takes us back to what? What was happening with Gandalf. And so what happens is, is Luke does a similar thing. He tells us that, man, when Stephen got stoned and the church scattered at Acts 1-8, these guys went to all these different locations. And then for the next three and a half chapters, he's going to tell us how the gospel spreads through Judea, Samaria, the church gets established, Paul gets converted, and the gospel gets preached to Cornelius. So during these three and a half chapters, there's all these significant events that are taking place. Church established in Judea and Samaria, Paul's conversion, Cornelius converted, and then all of a sudden we get to 1119 and Luke's saying, hey, remember what happened when Stephen got stoned? Remember what happened when the church got scattered? Well, let me explain to you exactly what went down. Well, if you remember, they scatter, right, to Judea and Samaria. But then in 1119, he tells us more details. He says... Those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. And what are they doing? 
They're speaking, still teaching, speaking, declaring, proclaiming, but they're only proclaiming the word to a specific group of people, Jews. So where geographically is that happening? Well, when Stephen gets stoned, there are a number of believers that get scattered to Cyprus. They get scattered right here. This area is Phoenicia. And then some of them get scattered all the way up to Antioch. We don't even know who these people are. We don't have a name for them. They don't get recorded by name in Scripture. We're just told that they got scattered, right, in fulfillment of Zechariah 13, 7, again, like Terry talked about Sunday night. But then he gives us a little bit more detail in verse 20 and 21. This is what he tells us. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to not Jews, but to who? Greeks, Hellenists. Preaching the Lord Jesus Christ and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. You can think through the commissioning texts and ask yourself, which one of those texts applies to this new group of people? So where are we at on the map? The gospel is now all the way up where? Here in Antioch. We have progressively moved away from Jerusalem, away from Judea and Samaria, and now we are all the way out here at the ends of the earth. What do we know about Antioch? It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at the time. It was multi-ethnic. It had Arabs there, Greeks there, Romans there, Jews there. Not only was it multi-ethnic, it was a melting pot of ideas and religious ideas. So it was very pluralistic. And in addition to that, it was an entire moral cesspool. Okay? It was as morally corrupt as you can possibly imagine. There was actually an open-air orgy just outside of Antioch called the Grove of Apollos. And we don't need to unpack any more of that, but to simply say that this place was as pagan as you can possibly get. So, keep with me. We've not only moved geographically, but now we're moving to a new group of people. We've moved from Jew to half-Jew to God-fearer to these people what? <laughs> They're godless, okay? They're entirely godless. And so as Luke walks us through this geographic movement, he's also walking us through a people movement away from where we started in the very, very beginning. All of that brings us to Acts chapter 11, verse 26. So if you look back down at your Bible, what does Luke tell us happens as a result of these guys going and preaching up at Antioch? Actually, start back in verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church. Where the gospel goes, the church follows. We got a church in Jerusalem. We got a church in Judea and Samaria. Now we've got a church where? At the ends of the earth in Antioch. And what are they doing while they're there? They taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is the first time in the Bible that that word is used. We get our namesake as Christians from a group of no-name people who were scattered at Stephen Stoning. That's ironic. We get our namesake from a group of no-name people who were scattered at Stephen Stoning. And while Paul and Barnabas are there, they're teaching. Which, which commissioning text applies? What happens in the local church? We what? We teach, we baptize. We teach, we baptize. So 
They're there teaching. You get to Acts chapter 11, and there is a major shift away from Peter to Paul. There's a major shift away, right, from Jerusalem to Antioch. There's a major shift away from Palestine to the Mediterranean, and there's a major shift away from Jew to Gentile. Because we're going exactly where Jesus said. They'd already seen this in John 3 and 4. All of that brings us to Acts 13 and 14. And so the church has now been established in Antioch among a pagan people, demonstrating the power of God, right, to save. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it's the power of God to whoever, right, to the Jew first, also to the Greek. And so God has brought a people to himself, and he's bringing a people to himself from all peoples. What did God want in Genesis chapter 1 from two weeks ago? He wanted a planet full of people gathered to himself who would know him, praise him, and worship him. And what is God getting? A people gathered to himself from all peoples. And so what transpires in Acts 13 and 14? Well, look down with me in chapter 13 at the first three verses. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit asked, or said, excuse me, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then after praying and, or after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. And what did they do with them? Sent them off. Which great commission text is applied? John 20, what? 21. And the name of our seminar, seminar is called and sent. Who sends missionaries? The local church through the power of the Spirit. And who's involved? The teachers, the elders, and the leaders. So Luke is once again tapping John 2021. 20, These guys are going to be sent. Now, where are they going to go? Well, they're basically going to launch from Antioch, and if you'll follow along with me, I'm going to take, them on their, take us with them on their first missionary journey. They're going to leave Antioch, and if you read through chapter 13 and 14, Luke is going to give us a detailed account. They're going to set sail from Seleucia. They're going to head down to Salamis. From Salamis, they're going to go to Paphos on the island of Cyprus. From Paphos, they're going to head up to Perga. From Perga, they're going to go up to Antioch, Pisidia. It's different than the Antioch that we talked about in chapter 11. From there, they're going to go to Iconium, Lystra, Derby, And when they get to Derby, they're going to double back to all these places that they've been. And when they get to the coast down here near Perga, they're going to set sail, and they're going to head back to where? Antioch. And there's a pattern that they follow in those two chapters with the method of their ministry. They're going to step into a synagogue. <clears throat> Why are they going to step into a synagogue? To the Jew what? First, where are they getting that pattern from? Jesus himself. Jesus came to his own first. His own received him not. So Paul's going to follow Christ's pattern. He's going to step into the synagogue. When he steps into the synagogue, he's going to tap into the Old Testament where it was written that the Christ was prophesied and promised about. What did he come for? to suffer, to die, to resurrect. What's the response? Repent and believe. What's the promise? Forgiveness of sins. And when Paul opens up his mouth, 
people welcome him with great, great joy and gladness. Know what repeatedly happens. He suffers as he's sent, just like John 20, 21, he suffers repeatedly. For those who believe, what does he do with those who believe at the synagogue and with these other Gentiles who he ends up preaching to? He's going to gather them into what? A church. How do we know? Because over in Acts chapter 16, we're told in verse 5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So he's not just out there making disciples. He's taking these disciples. He's gathering them into a church, just like the church in Jerusalem, the church in Judea and Samaria, the church in Antioch. And now him and Barnabas are preaching and planting. They're preaching, they're planting. They're teaching, they're baptizing. In the process, they're suffering as they're sent by a local church to plant other local what? Churches. What's the fruit of an apple tree, by the way? Just a quick side note. Ah, fruit of an apple tree, we would tend to say apples, but the fruit of an apple tree is actually more what? Apple trees. Right, what's the fruit of local churches? More local what? More local churches, right? Gathered believers where the word is taught and the ordinances are properly administered to. And so they teach, people believe, they're persecuted, they gather them. And in addition to that, we're also told over in Acts 14.23, okay? Look at Acts 14.23. That there's this added work in verse 23 that they appointed what? Elders, right? Elders, plural. There's a plurality of them that are established to help lead these different churches. And so Barnabas and Paul come back to Antioch. And what do they do at the end of chapter 14? Well, when they arrived, they gathered the church back together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Fascinating language that Luke uses here. Opened a door of faith. In John chapter 10, Jesus refers to himself as the door. You want to come into the kingdom? You come in through him. And what does coming in through him mean? It means turning from your sins and trusting him. You don't come in any other way, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And it's not by good works. It's not by good deeds. It's by faith. You get to Acts chapter 15, and this issue over circumcision arises because there are a number of people who think that you must be circumcised to be saved. That issue is dealt with because Paul and Barnabas stand up at the Jerusalem Council and say, hey, when we went and planted all these churches on our first missionary journey, we didn't require anybody to get circumcised. What do we do? We preach the gospel. They turned and trusted in Christ. They received forgiveness of sins, and we baptized them. When Peter stands up and gives his account in Acts 15 of what transpired, what narrative story is he tapping into? When he went to Cornelius' house. Hey, I didn't circumcise Cornelius or anybody there. That's not how it works. And so the issue is resolved that you don't come into the kingdom through circumcision, but you come in through what? Faith in Christ, right? You come in through faith in Christ. And so as you walk through the rest of the book of Acts, past chapter 15, Paul, who's an apostle to the Gentile, is either involved in planting pastoring or letter writing 
to churches in Acts 18, Acts 19, Acts 16, Acts 13, Acts 17. Rome, Corinth, Galatia, Ephesus, Philippi, Colossae, Thessalonica. All of those churches are comprised of people from the nations. Which is Luke's way of telling us this. Every single one of those churches is a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. Do we recognize when we read the book of Acts that it is Genesis 12, 1 through 3 in living color? What God promised in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is exactly what's happening. And the way that it's happening is through the method that he gave these guys in the commissioning passages before he ascended to take the throne as king. Here's how my kingdom advances. You preach, you teach, you baptize them, you gather them into churches, you appoint elders, you repeat the process. And as you do it, Here's what you can expect. The same thing that the prophets got and the same thing that I got. You can expect to suffer and you can expect to serve. And so when you come to the end of Acts, what do we find happening? Paul living there in Rome two whole years at his own expense, welcomed all who came to them proclaiming the kingdom of God and doing what? He's still teaching. <laughs> teaching, 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 teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so the gospel has moved its way to the ends of the earth, but the gospel has not made its way to every tongue, tribe, and nation. However, what are we told at the very end of Scripture? John gets a glimpse of what heaven's going to one day look like, and this is what he realized. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. There's so many people in heaven that John cannot put a number on them, but what he does realize is that they are from every nation, every tribe, all peoples, and all languages, and they are standing around the throne worshiping the Lamb, the one that we sang about when Michael led us through the song, the one that's worthy. What did God want in Genesis 1? A planet full of people who knew him, worshipped him, praised him, and adored him. And what does God get in the new heavens and the new earth? He gets a people gathered to himself from all peoples. Jews, half-Jews, God-fearers, pagan Gentiles. A people from all peoples gathered around the throne worshiping him forever. That is what heaven will one day look like, but that is not where we are at today. Today in the world, there are roughly 7,000 plus unreached people groups who are still waiting to hear about the good news of who Christ is and what Christ has done. And at the end of Moses' life in Deuteronomy, Chapter 1, verse 8. Deuteronomy basically is this recounting of the law to the children who are going to go in. And Moses commissions Joshua and the people. He says, go in and take possession of the land. And then you turn the page from Deuteronomy to Joshua. And when God commissions Joshua, he says, go over the Jordan for I will be with you. Almost exactly the same as what Jesus tells us in Matthew, what? 
28. We, right, we have been given a mandate to go take possession of the land. And I don't mean in some sort of a crusader fashion, because we've already established the fact that the kingdom does not advance by this sword. We take the land by what? This sword. By preaching the gospel. And so next week, Todd is going to walk us into the history of missions as we look at Protestant missions over the last two or three hundred years. And then he's going to talk the week after that about what is the task remaining in world evangelization. What do we have left in the commissioning that Jesus has given to the church? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for a chance again just to open up your word and watch your faithfulness. God, you are great. And you are greatly to be praised. Far beyond all we could imagine or comprehend. And so, Lord, I pray, God, I pray that you would raise up laborers from UBC as a church. And that we would be thrilled and excited to send those laborers, Lord, to the ends of the earth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sanders, you guys want to come up? No? <laughs> okay. Well, hey, um, I'm looking at our time, Trey. <laughs> so, uh, BJ, why don't you come up real quick? Um, and Jill, why don't you guys come up? Sure. Oh, thanks, Gideon, very much. <laughs> hey, Ryan, would you do me a favor? Uh, and would you mind bringing me my phone real quick? So, um, we've got some guests that came to be with us this evening, and um, I realize that we typically dismiss at about 8.30, so uh, if you guys need to sneak out at any point, um, feel free and don't feel embarrassed if you've got to sneak out of the back of the room uh, as we spend some time getting to know this couple that I've brought up here to the front. And so, some of you guys might not recognize who these friends of ours are, and so I've got some questions uh, that I wanted to ask these guys uh, as we get to know who our guests are. So if you guys don't mind, um, please tell us your names and maybe tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, where you're from, right, where'd you grow up, where'd you go to college, et cetera, et cetera. So go ahead. And why in the world are we up here? <laughs> and why in the world are we up here? We're BJ and Jill Sanders. Um, I am from Fort Smith, Arkansas, and I went to college here at the U of A a few years ago. It's a little bit, a little bit ago. <laughs> and um, I got involved in UBC right away. Uh, I had a, the privilege of my three older brothers went to college here before me and set a pretty good example for me. They all got involved at UBC and so followed in their footsteps and joined a Bible study here. And then after my freshman Bible study, I also joined a missions Bible study um, my sophomore year that was led by none other than Sean Cooper. So, yeah, so that's how I got to know Sean. And I think I'll stop there and let Jill talk. Yeah, I did not grow up in Arkansas. I grew up in Oklahoma, Piedmont, if anyone knows where that is, um, right outside of Oklahoma City. But I went to the University of Oklahoma 
Boomer Sooner. <laughs> You're in the wrong place to yeah. say it. <laughs> we have any Sooner fans? <laughs> Ooh, woot, woot. BJ, who else do you know here besides just me? Oh, I know Michael Gaddy, too. I think we'll get to how our paths crossed here in a minute, just as we unfold our testimony a little bit. For sure. Um, where did you grow up going to church, BJ? I grew up going to Grand Avenue Baptist Church down, down in Fort Smith. Fort Smith. Yeah. Okay. And Jill, yourself? First Baptist, Yukon, okay. Oklahoma. First Baptist, Yukon. Is there okay. anyone famous from Yukon, Oklahoma, Jill? Garth Brooks. <laughs> Sorry. Blame it all on my roots. <laughs> So just briefly, um, tell us, what are you guys doing now? Okay, so we work overseas among the Wantakia people of Papua New Guinea. Uh, Wantakia previously was an unreached people group in the mountains there in Papua New Guinea, uh, a small, very isolated people group of about 5,000 people, and us, our awesome three kids, Sophie, Olivia, and Graham, can you all wave? Um, and two other families, uh, Jack and Lael Crabtree, who are from Fayetteville as well. Some of y'all might know them, yes. And um, Jeremy and Mandy Hambrice, who are also from Arkansas. We're Team Arkansas, and we moved from the worship of the hogs to Papua New Guinea, where they worship pigs too, so <laughs> right at home. Um, <laughs> and we, man, I don't know, yeah. You want me to go through the, Keep I think going. you're going to ask me later. But, oh man, we... We moved over there several years ago, and yeah, we we learned the national language in Papua New Guinea, and we're the whole thing. The whole time we're thinking we want to go to an unreached people group, and so we heard about Wantakia, uh, this place where yeah, what is unreached? Um, but Wantakia was unreached. There was no churches there, no scripture in their language, no way for them to have churches planted among them, and churches they're going to plant churches. And so our team heard about Wantakia and went out there and surveyed, and it was clear that this wasn't happening there. So we uh, moved out there. We went and talked with the people, and they invited us to come in, and we have since moved out there, and a lot of cool things have happened. Okay, so you say you're working among an unreached people group. What do you mean when you say unreached exactly? You kind of touched on it, but what do you mean exactly? Yeah, so unreached is Sean, in case you didn't know. <laughs> it's, it's basically there's no local body of Christians. There's no local church that's going to be able to evangelize or it's going to be able to plant churches among the rest of the people group. And so that was true of Wantakia. There's no way that this is going to happen, what we've been talking about here tonight. It's not going to happen unless someone physically goes and learns their language, and shares the gospel with them in their language. So you're specifically doing church planting work? Yeah. Okay. So at this point, some of you are saying, uh, we still don't know who these people are entirely, and why did we bring them here? So there were a couple reasons. Um, BJ and I were roommates in college, and we were all involved in college ministry with Michael Gaddy and with Trey Richardson. And the Sanders were, happened to be home on furlough, um, and Michael reached out to me and said, hey, what if we had the Sanders come and share a little bit about what they're doing, because this is exactly what we want to be about at UBC, right? We want to be about the work of planting churches. Um, we want to be about the work of the gospel being preached. That's what we gathered from our walkthrough of Acts tonight, 
And so we thought, man, what a great opportunity to bring some friends in who happen to be home on furlough that were doing this exact thing. So if you're wondering, are they members at UBC? No, they're not members at UBC, but BJ was a student here um, in college at UBC and had connection with Michael and Trey and I. And so that's why we wanted to bring them in was just to give you guys a peek at exactly what does it look like in 2021 to see the same thing that was happening in the book of Acts. And so there's a few other questions um, that I would love to, uh, to ask you guys. How did you very first get exposed to missions? I know me and you were in a missions Bible study, but I know that there was far more than that. So Jill, how did you first get exposed to missions? Yeah, well, I'm sure I heard it like my whole life in church, um, but when I went to a summer project where I met BJ, um, we heard the biblical basis of missions, what you guys are learning right now. Um, it was all in one day, though, and I was overwhelmed thinking, I can't believe there's people groups out there that don't have the Bible in their language and that are totally unreached, and so, I don't know, we say that that day just ruined our lives for the better. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, me too. Like that's, we both went to the same summer project in Kaleo. I'm sure you guys are familiar. Yeah, and we met there, and I was in a D group with Gaddy, and we all got our worlds rocked that summer. Like, what? The Bible, one story, one theme, like beginning to end, he's gathering worship worshipers from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he's inviting us to join in. And so, man, from that moment, we knew that this is, we had to be involved. And so, yeah, that was the start of our journey. Down Did this you know path. what your involvement would look like all at once? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> okay, so you didn't like hear God's word and immediately say, okay, this is what we're doing, where we're going. It was a process. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about the process with regards to what kind of training did you guys get before you actually decided to head overseas? I'd mm -hmm. love for you to share a little bit about that process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, we took a, just a class in college that continued to teach us the stuff that you guys are learning. And um, then that was sort of when we decided this is what we want to do. We, we want to be a part of this. Um, I like to say my favorite um, thing from that class was a quote from Luther Wishard. Um, he said, I'm willing to go anywhere at any time to do anything for Jesus. And I wanted that to be like my, my heart. Like I wanted to say, yeah, God, I want to go anywhere anywhere, anytime to do anything. And so um, BJ felt the same way, thankfully. So we got married and um, just continued to say, yeah, we want to do this. We want to we wanna go anywhere. So um, we knew just like any, you know, if you want to be a doctor, you need to get trained. Um, if you want to be a pastor, you need to get trained. So we wanted to be missionaries and to go to the unreached, and we had to get trained because we didn't know what we were doing. We still don't. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we decided to, we wanted to go to Papua New Guinea, and um, a really good agency we heard to get trained with was um, Ethnos 360. And so the first two years were Bible school, just really digging into God's word um, because you're going to be teaching everybody the Bible, so you need to know it really well. Do you want to see the next two? Yeah, and then we went to their cross-cultural training center, and so learning things like phonemics, phonetics, uh, church planning principles, foundational Bible teaching. You're going to go live in the middle of a remote, like, rainforest. How are you going to survive out there? Practical skills. Uh, so, no, Sean, we did not, like, 
you know, as 20-year-olds, 20, <laughs> like, hearing God's heart for the nations go, sign me up, I'm out of here tomorrow. No, like, it took years. Like, yeah. we finished our degrees. We went through this intense training program for four years. So it was a four-year training? Yep. Yeah. And then we spent a year support raising, and then finally <laughs> we moved overseas. Um, so four years seems like a long time to do training, right? Uh, how long is most training? As you guys explored training options, what did you guys discover as far as what yeah. kind of training was available out there? Yeah, as we were getting wise counsel from other people, it was like, well, man, we're ready to go. Like, we could go with this organization, and six weeks later, we could be overseas. And that's that was what we really wanted to do, but as we were getting wise counsel from different people, it's like, no, you you need good training. And so... Yeah, not the norm. I would say the norm is, you know, two-week crash course and then you're over there. But mm -hmm. we've just seen too much of that um, where people aren't prepared for what is coming and they end up coming back. So we're super thankful that we got this intense training program before we went overseas. Yeah, and if you're going to commit, like, your whole life to something, I mean, four years is nothing, you know. And so that's the way we felt. Um, how did you guys explain that to your, just your church elders and your church leadership, like the necessity of that? Mm. Yeah, we, when we were starting to go down this track, we met with our church and they, um, I think they saw the wisdom in it immediately. They're like, yes, BJ, we can't train you. Like they straight up said that, like you could stay here and you could be involved and like we could help you with lots of things, but moving to Papua New Guinea and church planning among an unreached people group, we're not exactly, we're kind of a small church. We're not prepared to train you for that. So yes, please, like we know this group and we, we trust that they're going to train you and send you well. We're still sending you, but they're going to train you and equip you. And so, so they understood that, man, the church sends. Yes. It's the work of the local church to send. Yes. But they also understood there's a boundary marker to which we can't train you yeah. past this. Yeah. Okay. Any other thoughts on that, Jill? No? So you guys had an opportunity. They were on board with that. Um, so give us a quick overview of just kind of where you guys are at in the process now. So how long have you been in P PNG or Papua New Guinea for short? Okay. Um, and bring us up to speed. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Seven years and 70 seconds. <laughs> so we moved over there in 2014, learned the national language, Heard about Wantakia. When you say the national language, what's the national language? The national language is Tokpizin or pigeon. Pigeon. You okay. basically put Pella on the end of anything. I went Pella to the store Pella. No, not really. <laughs> it's a little more complex. Big than Pella, that. long Pella. Okay. Go ahead. So you moved there, you learned the national language. Uh, moved out to Wantakia and we basically told the people we're here to do five things. Did you things. just drive a bus there? Or how'd you get yeah. there? We drove a bus. No. We. Um, <laughs> It's a two-day hike from the nearest road. Uh, there's no roads, there's no schools, there's no hospitals, there's no government services, there's nothing. Uh, they live off the land, they grow sweet potatoes. So we flew out to a nearby airstrip and then hiked out there. And so we get in. Um, the men yeah, did that. Yeah, we get in now by a helicopter. And so we told them, we're coming to do five things. We're gonna learn your language and your ways, like your culture. We are going to teach you to read and write because there's no literacy there's nothing happening out there in, that, in the way of education. We're going to translate this message into your language, God's talk, the Bible. Uh, we're going to teach it to you. 
Our command is to teach, right? That's what we're talking about. And we're going to disciple you to carry on this work after we're gone. And so by God's grace and by just like slowly plodding out there over the last few years, we've seen this, these things happen. We learned the language and culture. Um, Jill can talk about how we've developed a literacy program. We've started translating. And last year, we got to teach God's word in their language for the very first time. We met every day for three months and started in the beginning where every good story starts and shared uh, the gospel with them in the heart language. And so you guys didn't start in John? <laughs> Sorry, no, we didn't. Okay. John 3.16. John 3.16, okay, good. Okay, so you started in Genesis. Yes. Okay, keep going. And shared, I think, 60 lessons, um, yeah, just unfolding God's story um, of God, a creator, and uh, I, could, I could go through the whole thing with you now. I want to, but I can't. Um, <laughs> what do you guys refer to it as, creation to Christ? Creation to Christ. Okay. Um, and then we have a, an extra little five or six lessons on there to finish the story for them, how this thing ends, like the Holy Spirit is sent, book of Acts, churches are planted, they're going to keep being planted, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and then Jesus is coming back. Okay, so we got to share this story. Uh, the church was born. People were given testimony left and right. And Wantakia is, we can check it off the list of the 7,600 that he just mentioned. Um, it's not an unreached people group anymore. There's a church out there. So you guys now have believers. You are gathering them into a church. Yeah. You're discipling them. And at some point, you're going to be appointing elders. Elders. And we're going to train them to plant other churches. There's 10 villages in Wantakia. We're just in village one right now. It's not going to stop there. We're going to train them. We're going to go with them and model it for them. And then we're going to hold their hand through it. And eventually, they're going to be doing it themselves, planting churches all down the river into all the other uh, villages. Jill, you want to talk real quickly about just kind of literacy and why yeah. getting them trained in reading and writing was so <laughs> essential? Yeah. So if we go there and translate the Bible and say, here you go, here it is, um, I mean, we can still teach it to them, but they're going to be dependent on us forever. And so if we teach them to read and write, which nobody knew before, they're very illiterate. Um, yeah, we need to leave them with that, those skills to be able to, you know, do what you guys do, teach people the Bible. And so, um, yeah, Lael Crabtree, she's amazing for y'all who know her, created an alphabet. and uh, Wait, they didn't have an alphabet before? Didn't have an alphabet. Okay. Nope. Um, yeah, very... Never yeah. been written down before. Right. Yeah. So Lael got extra training and created an alphabet. And, um, yeah, we started literacy school. We had 10 students for our first, and then we had a graduation. And then we have our second class graduation. Now we're starting our third class. Um, so more and more people are doing literacy, and we're also doing a post-literacy. So once they graduate from the first class, they continue to learn. Because it's just like when you learn how to read, you still need to practice. And so... Yeah, that's what we're doing. But the cool thing about that is we're modeling discipleship the whole time. So we're teaching them, and then we see potential teachers, so we start training them to be teachers. And right now, the third class, we have national teachers, and we're just observing, basically. And so, um, yeah, we're modeling that the whole time so that when they take it to other villages, same thing. We go with them and teach with them, the third one. They're teaching. We're assisting. So, um, yeah, it's just been so cool just to see people read God's word, you know, on their own at their house. We go around the village and we see people just sitting there reading or at night we see their little cell phone flashlights and they're reading God's word. 
And so it's just, it's just been such a privilege just to be able to see, you know, God's name being read, you know, in their heart language. And so it's just sustainable for them to be able to keep doing that well after we're gone. So you guys have already started the work of translating because they've heard the gospel, but now if they're going to be taught God's word, they need God's word in their language. So how long is it going to take you guys to get the translation work done roughly? Yeah, so everything we translated to tell that, you know, God's story from beginning to end last year was like Genesis, Exodus, Gospel of Mark, much of Acts, and then parts of Revelation. So now we're basically trying to start in Romans and go Romans to Revelation and translate that for them. And so it's like this baby church was just born, and the, in many ways the work has just begun. And so we're going back in August. We're going to keep translating. We're going to keep discipling so that one day we can appoint elders and they can be on their own. Uh, the Holy Spirit, God's word in their language, local church, don't need the missionaries anymore. So I often hear people say it's not a time commitment, it's a task commitment. So you'll be there as long as the task takes. Yeah. But do you have an estimated time for what that might be? Another eight years, ten years? Well, we know Paul was never anywhere longer than three years, but he didn't translate and he didn't have to learn languages, so I don't know. <laughs> Come well, on, Paul. That's <laughs> fine. Let's end with just a, a couple other quick thoughts. Um, Jill, what has been one of the hardest things, and BJ, what's been one of the most rewarding things? And then we'll kind of close down our time. Thanks for staying a little long with us. So. You make me say the negative stuff. That's right. That's not my personality. <laughs> no, I can definitely talk about negative things. Um, <laughs> yeah, just some of the hard things is, um, I don't know, trusting God with, like, our kids growing up there, um, medical. Yeah, we've had, like, we've had a scare with our middle child. We thought that her appendix was rupturing, and, you know, we're helicopter only. So, um, just trusting God. We actually were able to fly out that next day, and she was healed. The Lord healed her. Um, yeah, it's it's no hidden thing that I have a huge Band-Aid on my forehead. And so, um, yeah, just in the tribe, I have really fair skin, and we're on the equator at 8,000 feet up. And so um, I, I've had several skin cancers. And so I just see a spot come up, and I'm like, oh, great. I think that's more skin cancer, and there's nothing I can do about it because we're in Papua New Guinea, and there's no dermatologist. And so, um, yeah, just trusting God with some of those medical issues. And, um, yeah, that's really hard some days because you just think, well, if I was in America, I'd already have been to the doctor, you know. Um, We'll also say, can I say one more thing? Sure. Just freedom. Like, as a woman, there's not very much freedom, and that's really difficult because, you know, I can't go walking by myself or, um, I don't know, I can't go shopping and just different things that we, you know, we love our freedom. And, um, yeah, so that's really difficult for me. BJ, what's been rewarding? Yeah, oh, man. <laughs> just the joy of seeing the church born last year. And um, as people were giving their testimonies, one of my best friends in the tribe, he just started crying. He said, man, what if you guys wouldn't have come here? we would be on our way to hell. We would still be over there in Satan's clan. Like, that's how they talk about it. We came from Adam, and we couldn't help ourselves. There was nothing we could have done to save ourselves. But you guys came here, and he just, man, he's just weeping. He's like, thank you for coming here. And so to see, like, that is so worth it. Um, Jesus is is worthy. Um, he's He's worth it. Like we counted the cost, some of the stuff she talked about, it's all worth it because he's worthy. And to see 
my friends over there go from darkness to light. Totally worth it. Um, real quick, I want one last comment, and then I'll pray for us and dismiss this. How have you guys seen your local church get behind you? Because obviously you guys are one couple from your local church, and so not everybody in this room is going to go, nor should they go, nor would we expect them to go, but some will. And so just real briefly, what are some ways that you've seen your guys' local church be directly involved in your work over there? If it's the church that sends, um, what has that Maybe just a couple things about what that's looked like. Man, they have been behind us 100%, praying for us and supporting us financially. They came over and helped us build our houses. Uh, we, we built houses from like bush materials over there, and they came over and helped with that. Um, they have, they're always sending care packages, and they're always um, writing us. And they sent a team over a couple of years ago, just like an encouragement team to come over. And so... Those are all awesome yeah. things for a local sending church to do, and they, they've been great. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, thank you for staying a few minutes long with us. Um, I'm going to pray us out. We'll do our book giveaway next week. So some of you guys are like, what about the book? Don't worry. It'll be waiting for you next week since we kept you along. Um, and if you guys are interested in hearing more of BJ and Jill's story, uh, tomorrow night they're going to be doing a two-hour teaching session up at First Baptist Centerton Church. Um, in Centerton, and then on Thursday night, they'll be doing the same two-hour teaching uh, at the Center for Missions Mobilization off of Garland. So uh, if you have time and you want to get over and hear more of their story, uh, you can join them over there, and you're more than welcome to just hear more about their work tonight after we're done, but that's why we wanted to bring them in, because this is um, what UBC is wanting to do, is see churches planted and the gospel preached um, among these unreached people groups, and so we just wanted to give you a thumbnail picture of kind of what that looked like. So let me pray for us, and we'll dismiss this. Father, thank you for tonight and uh, just an opportunity to hear from your word. And Lord, let us never take for granted that we have it in our language. God, I pray that you would make us at UBC a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness, a people who hunger to know your word and to teach it and to preach it and to share it with both our neighbors um, and the nations at the ends of the earth. God, again, we thank you that we got to see a demonstration of your faithfulness through the book of Acts. And Lord, thank you that we got to have BJ and Jill here tonight to share with us how you are still at work to fulfill your purpose through your promise. Help us as a body to determine, Lord, how you want us to be more involved in Great Commission work. We need wisdom in this way, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys are dismissed. Thanks again.